Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high-quality, cutting-edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Good morning, everybody. It's time for another episode of Dear Joel. This is where you guys ask me your questions and I answer them with the most anger, hatred, and no, I'm kidding. I'm just having a little bit of fun, but uh, yeah, if you got questions you guys want to submit, send them to al at urmacademy.com and put in the subject Dear Joel, and I will be happy to go through your questions and answer them on these episodes. So today we're going to have a little bit of fun. I'm already riled up and ready to rant. So let's begin. Dear Dark Lord of no small time, I'm at a crucial point in my life where I'm about to leave my job. I've got money saved up to go pursue working in a studio. I don't want to sell myself short, but I'm not the best at editing, using MIDI, or even using outboard gear because my current setup is all in the box. Later this week, I'm taking a tour of the studio and meeting the owner. My question is, how should I go about presenting myself knowing that I have some flaws that might make me unsuitable for the gig? P.S. I almost wrote a novel, but I did my best to shorten it up for you. Thanks, William. All right, William, here's what's up. So first and foremost, if you don't know something, you need to fucking learn it, okay? So if I walked into a studio for the first time and I wanted to be an intern, I want to leave that studio with the impression that the owner of the studio is going to know that no matter what I don't know, that I'm going to be the hardest working, best intern or assistant or whatever he's trying to hire you for that he's ever had. If I don't know something, I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna study it relentlessly and I'm gonna learn it. If you know I'm struggling with something, I'm gonna become the best I can at it. So you have to really make the impression that you're there to learn and that, yeah, you know, admit your faults. Hey, you know, I'm not the best at this and that, but I'm really learning and I'm really working and putting a lot of time. And every day I go home after session and after work and I spend a couple hours, you know, working on my editing skills, for example, or working on my MIDI skills. So you got to present confidence. You got to walk in there and feel like you know what you're doing because if you don't have any confidence, you're not going to do a good job and it's just not going to come off right. So, you know, anytime you're approaching anybody who owns a studio, they want to know that somebody that is coming in is there to learn and they want to be great and they want to add value to the studio and they're going to really work hard and they're going to try to excel and be the absolute best they can be. If you can do that, you're going to stand out. If you can't do that, you're not going to stand out. So it's very important to just walk in there with confidence and be like, you know, I don't know really how to do this yet, but I really want to learn. Maybe you can teach me because I want to be great at it. And when you say things like that and use verbiage like that and say, hey, you know, I don't really know a lot about that yet, but I want to become great at it. I can't wait. I'm so excited and enthusiastic to learn this craft. I want to make this my life. This is the center of my world. This is what I'm the most passionate about. I want to be absolutely mind-blowingly fantastic at doing this. So if you walk in there with an attitude like that, William, you can't lose. So that's what I would do. All right, next question. Dear darkest lord of the abyss of no small time. I'm having a really hard time with guitars. I can't get them sounding wide like on the IC Stars record or any other album for a matter. I've tried and tried, and I know there's a good way to get that sound, but I literally can't figure it out. Thanks for any help, Shay. All right, Shay, let's talk about recording guitars. Recording heavy, distorted guitars that sound A-list are a fucking pain in the ass. And I mean that with the most sincerity. If there's one thing I've always struggled with in my career and I've always gotten pissed off over, it's distorted guitars, which is ironic because yes, I am a guitar player and I've been playing guitar for probably like over 20 years now. I don't even know. So if I struggle with them and every other dude I know that's great at this stuff struggles with them, 
don't feel so bad. Getting great at guitars is an art, and I mean an art, and it takes time. And if you wanna really master them, you have to put in the time to get great at them. So for example, let's just start out with miking a guitar cab. So if I was gonna mic up a guitar cab and I had a bunch of gear, well, first off, before I tell you the process, I'll talk about how to train it. So first things first, getting the right miking position, very difficult. This is something that I struggled with in my career for a very, very long time. You know, like, where do you put the mic? How does it translate? Where do I get that special sound that just sounds A-list? You know, how much EQ should I be adding afterwards? And yes, it's really difficult to reverse engineer because when you listen to a finished guitar tone, like you don't know how many tracks of guitars it took to get that necessarily, what gear they were using. Um, it can be, you know, how much EQ, for example, was used on it, how, how much compression, limiting, if there was saturation. You have no idea what kind of craziness happened into the mix and you have no idea what the raw tone came in as. So it's really a struggle to figure out, you know, like why does this finished guitar not sound anything like my raw guitar? And I struggled that, with that for a long time. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna grab a guitar cab, maybe like a vintage 30, like whatever you have, and a good head and a good guitar, and you're gonna record a riff, double track it, throw it in a mix with your best drums and bass that you can possibly come up with. Then you're going to take that microphone, put it right in the center, of the speaker, you know, pick any speaker, and then you're gonna record, reamp it. Then you're gonna re-reamp it and move it over to the left an inch, and then another inch, and then another inch, and then you're gonna go back to the center off to the right an inch, and you're gonna go through systematically and record like every inch of that guitar cabinet, and you're gonna take detailed, brutal notes, and you're gonna listen, and you're gonna compare, and you're gonna see if you notice some trends. You know, for example, maybe you like it right in the center. Maybe you like it right in the center, but slightly off axis. Maybe you like it, um, you know, where the, Cone meets the dust cap, you know, like where that circle thing is. Um, there's lots of different ways and places that you can mic a guitar cab. So you gotta really sit down and just listen very, very, very carefully and see how things translate. So then, you know, you pick a couple of favorites, like I like one, two, and three, maybe three different positions. And then you're gonna throw them in your mix and then you're gonna see how much EQ you need. You know, maybe one is too hissy and bright, the other one's too dark, but the other one mixes really well. I don't know, you know, you gotta experiment, you gotta put some time in. So if you do that and you spend like a whole day or two doing that and you do that maybe like once a month, give it six months, your guitar game will get way better. You'll start knowing where to put the mic, how it's gonna translate better, et cetera. So that being said, aside from training it, what you really need to do now is then you need to go through a process when getting guitar tones. And like I said, we'll talk about Sims later. So first and foremost, what you wanna do is you're gonna sit down with the cabinet. You pick the cabinet first. So if you have several cabinets, they're all gonna have different speakers in them. So listen to the different cabinets. You know, just like I said, get some drums in, get a bass, get it mixed as close as you can and reamp the part. And then just sit there and be like, all right, does a vintage 30 sound better than a G12 H30 or a, you know, a Greenback or a 75 or an Eminence Legend or et cetera? And then you're gonna pick a speaker. And then you're gonna sit down with that cabinet, whether it's a two by 12 or a four by 12 or a one by 12. Um, well, if it's a one by 12, I guess it's a moot point, but like a two by 12 or a four by 12, you're going to then go and take the microphone. You're going to find the direct center of the speaker, maybe like an inch back. And you're gonna do that for every single speaker. And you're gonna find the best speaker where you turn up the volume to the excursion point where the speaker just starts moving and vibrating physically a little bit. Cause right around there is like where it starts radically changing the tone of the guitar what it sounds like and how it moves air and etc. And you know, you want to find that volume kind of in there where the speaker's kind of starting to excurse and just see how the different speakers handle the excursion of the speaker. And the excursion is the movement again. And some of them are going to kind of fart out and get tubby. Some of them are going to be really awesome and super brutal sounding. Some of them are going to sound uh, 
you know, very unfocused, etc. So different speakers are going to sound different, even though they're the exact same thing, depending on how much use and wear and tear they have, just depending on manufacturing variants and all kinds of things like that. So it's really important to just really get down with the excursion of the speaker and figure out which speaker is the best sounding one on the guitar cab. Once you know which speaker is the best sounding one on the guitar cab, you can then go and play around with the mic positioning. And again, since you spent so much time playing with mic positioning, you're going to have a general good idea of where you should be placing the microphone in relation to the speaker. So maybe you like it in the center of the cone or a little bit of the edge of the cone or et cetera. So go play around with that, reamp a bunch of different places and try to get the best tone out of that. So once you've got the speaker and you've got the mic position, um, what you can then do maybe is try different microphones at that exam- at that same position. I mean, I would go in and uh, maybe tape it off so you can get it duplicable, but try different microphones and see which one you like. So after you shoot out a bunch of different microphones and you find a microphone that you like, maybe it's a 57 or an i5 or a Heil PR30 or you know, an Sennheiser E609 or, you know, there's so many different microphones you can use. But the point is you're going to find one that is going to get you stoked. And then once you've got the speaker, you've got the microphone and the microphone position, you're going to go, you're going to pick the head and you're going to play with all your different heads and you're going to sit there and you're going to try to dial in each one the best you can. You're going to compare all the different heads. And then once you've got that dialed in, you're going to go and you're going to grab all the guitars you have in the building and you're going to reamp the same riff through it with all that great guitar chain that you've spent so much time getting and you're going to pick the best sounding guitar for that once you have the best sounding guitar you're going to then play with the different pick gauges and see which different pick gauges work the best and sound the best in the mix so once you have all those variables you hit record and then meticulously and ruthlessly record your guitar parts now if you're using amp sims it's going to kind of be the same process what i would do is generally maybe find a bunch of presets that I really like and I would go through a bunch of them and just see which one gels into the mix with the DIs the best and sounds the most powerful and the most excellent. And eventually you're going to narrow it down to like two or three different tones. And then once you find that tone, you want to tweak it. The cool thing about an amp sim is you can always load or save like, Hey, I like this tone, but maybe I can get it better. So you hit save on it. And then you go and you tweak for 20 minutes. You come back, you listen, you compare, and then you're like, you know, uh, I totally screwed it up. Then you can revert back with a single mouse click and without killing yourself. So that is the process for getting your guitars to sound awesome on the way in. And when they sound awesome on the way in, it's gonna be a lot easier to mix it. Now, once you get your guitars rocking on the way in, now we need to talk about mixing guitars. So this could be a 14 hour rant, I feel like, and I feel like it's also best shown, but I would definitely start by watching maybe how we handle some of the stuff on Nail the Mix. For example, if you wanna get like an IC Stars mix, you could watch uh, Joey mix something like Chunk or uh, Vesta Collide and see how he processes his guitars and he gets the kind of tones that he gets. Um, you know, if you like the more natural guitars and stuff like that, maybe watch somebody like AL or, um, Andrew Wade or, you know, et cetera, or, you know, Nolly or whatever. So we've had so many different guys here on Nail the Mix. Some of those back issues, if you haven't been subscribed from the whole time, um, there's some really great stuff in there and some real gold for how to mix guitars. But either way, there's a lot of different things that you can try. For example, getting the right EQ, getting the right amount of limiting or compression or not compression, maybe using saturation, et cetera. Either way, you got to try all of them. You got to get a workflow. I mean, talking about how to mix guitars super massive and wide is um, it's hard because it's a lot of philosophy and it's so much easier to show it. I think width is an issue of one panning them very far left to right. So 100 percent. But I mean, let's discard that as like an obvious thing that most people would do right away. So you got to get the bottom end right. If you want width, width is usually a function of 
you know, frequency, right? So basically, if you get your frequencies right and you don't have any weird, crazy low end swinging around, you know, it's nice and tight on the bottom end, your mid range is nice and tight and it's not super honky and your top end is smooth and bright, but not harsh, you're gonna get really, really wide sounding guitars that sound crushing in a mix. But you also have to realize that massive guitar sound in a mix is not necessarily just a function of the guitars. It's also a function of how the bass and the drum sound. So if you have a really crushing bass and a really crushing drum sound, you'll find that you can get it to lock very tightly with your guitars and you can get a super massive, super wide crushing guitar sound. And it'll sound much larger than life because it is the synergy of a lot of different parts coming together to make something that is greater as a whole than it is by itself in solo. So that's really the rub of getting your guitars to sound amazing is figuring out where you need to mic the cab or what kind of preset you need to get on the raw side to get it to translate where it sounds amazing in a mix so then you can massage it. And that is an art and it takes years to master and to get the ear. I can't just give you a formula for it. Like you actually have to sit down and do the work and it's hard work. And you know, um, there's probably less than like 50 guys on the planet that are masters of the A-list guitar game. And I'll tell you, not a single one of those guys got to that level by being lazy about it. They all got there by working their asses off and really, really pushing themselves and struggling every single day and trying to get fancy fantastic at it. So, all right, let's move on to the next question. Dear Dark Lord of no small time, can you tell me how an average tracking session goes from when the band comes in the door straight to when everything is recorded and ready to be edited? Let's assume that the band members are good guys, not geniuses, but who know their shit. Let's assume we're doing a 12 song album. Thanks in advance, Ropey. All right, Ropey. So here's how I record a band. Everybody's going to do it differently. And I definitely recommend you find a workflow that works for you. And again, experience will dictate to you how you should do it over time. You try a bunch of different things. You try to optimize stuff and eventually you're going to figure it out and get it down to a science and you're going to find something that works for you every time. So when I have a band come in, first thing I do is, I mean, I've already talked to them and, you know, gotten paid some money and explained how everything's going to go down. But basically the band comes into my studio and we start recording click tracks. Um, I don't really like doing pre-pro. I'm not much of a pre-pro guy. If I hear something bullshit on the click track, I'll adjust it, but I like kind of doing that stuff more after drums are recorded, and I usually leave the drums set up and whatever. So generally, I'm going to come in, I'm going to record all the click tracks with the band, get the stuff down, maybe make any arrangement edits or whatever. Um, if the band is writing with me, I will sit down and I will just write with them, but that's a whole different experience. So let's just assume that their songs are written and I don't need to like do any major surgery or rewrite the entire album for the band because they suck. So that being said and that being a set aside, what happens is then the drummer will come in and track all of the drums. So I'll set them up. I'll try to get all the drums done in like a day to two or three days. And um, then I'll edit them right then and there so they're perfect. Once the drums are edited, then I will go and I will track guitars. So we'll go in and we will get all of the guitars set up and get all the tones and et cetera. Um, part of me editing the drums usually is triggering them up if needed and getting the drums pretty much mixed. So it sounds like, you know, you've got the kick and the snare pretty much ready to go and slamming. So you can get closer tones to the album without having to go crazy from the get-go. That way, if you've been working on a drum sound for, you know, over a week or two weeks or maybe three weeks with a band, you can always go back and change your snare and you can say, you know, I've been listening to the snare for three weeks and it just doesn't bring enough heat. I want a lower, deeper snare or something like that. So I track guitars, edit them, get perfect guitar tracks. That's done. And then I do bass, get perfect bass tracks. Boom, that's done. Then I get my vocalist in, 
and we spend time getting the vocals perfect, edited, tuned, etc. So once the vocals are perfect, then I will sit down and do any post-production with the band, you know, orchestration, strings, synth, like whatever they need me to do, whatever creative stuff they want. Um, and by the way, I should mention the entire time that I'm sitting there with the band, if I hear something that I think sucks or needs work, or I have an idea, I'm going to just say it and we're going to work on uh, working on the song as we do it and cutting things and moving things and stuff like that. I usually also take drum samples, I should say, after I cut the drums, just in case I need to like fabricate some sort of drum track. But again, if you leave your drum set up, then the drummer can just go walk in and punch them in in the other room and it's not a problem. So you need a lot of inputs obviously to do that and inputs cost money, but it's really nice for workflow. Uh, if you want to be flexible, you can always program the drums first with the band or have them bring in program drums and then you can work off that, get everything tracked and then go back and track drums later at the end. But either way, at the end of the day, I like to have everything recorded, edited as I'm doing it tuned, etc. Everything is perfect. Then add any post or whatever. And then after that's all done, I'll go in and I'll mix the album. So I'll throw the band out because I don't want them sitting over my shoulder when I'm mixing it. I'll get my first mix done, bring the band in, get their opinions on it, tweak, do whatever, get that first mix. And then I will mix the entire rest of the record uh, with them removed from the studio. Uh, I also master while I'm mixing. So then I hand the band a, a CD and they go home and we sing Kumbaya and dance around the fire. <laughs> so um, that's pretty much how an average tracking session goes for me. You know, that, that would be like more of, I would say like our local, regional, smaller national band. Uh, if I'm doing something larger and bigger, then generally it's going to involve a lot of writing and we're going to sit down and submit demos to the label for approval. Once the label gives us approval on the songs, then we will actually go and execute and track the songs. All right. Next question. Dear Dark Lord of the Abyss of Small Time. Can you describe your monitoring setup? I've subscribed to the Bobcats pro advice from your podcast, and I'm curious what you're listening through, given that you have a similar respect for analog. Thanks, Nelson. Nelson, I'm using a pair of Focal Twins, and I have a KRK sub. You know, not the most expensive or brutal monitoring setup, but it's definitely good enough, and I know it intimately. And I trust the speakers, and I've had enough stuff on a radio that I know how it translates and I know what it's going to sound like, and I'm very confident in it. And I think that's the most important part is get a great set of speakers that you can afford, that you feel comfortable mixing on, that you really learn intimately, and you get them really set up and dialed into your with your room and your room treated right. And once you have it all set up and you know it, and you've done a bunch of mixes and you've seen how it's translated across different mediums, you should be good to go. Dear great annihilator, destroyer, and destructor of all that is small time, what other mics do you use on guitar cabs other than the SM57? Thanks, John. John, first off, there are no other mics for a guitar cab that you can possibly use other than a 57. All of the mics are a lie and are false and are banished to the abyss of small time. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, there are a lot of fantastic mics for micing guitars, and I recommend having a lot of them because each one has a very different frequency signature. And sometimes you may find like a 57 isn't as cool as a high LPR 30 in a certain tuning and a certain type of song. I didn't get really cool guitar tone. So some mics I like other than a 57. Um, I like the Audix i5. It's like a slightly more high 57. Um, you can try the E609. I don't get much good results out of it, meaning like I've never really gotten into that mic, but I own one and I try it. Um, a 421. I kind of have a love-hate with the 421. Like Very few times in my career has it ever worked for me. And when it's worked for me, I've usually gotten a really sick and awesome tone with it. But um, most of the time, I, I just can't get the damn 421s to work. I don't like multi-miking. It's just not my thing. Um, 
Hi-O PR30 is a really cool microphone that's really got a lot of depth and it's kind of scoop sounding and very modern. I do like the PR30. That's kind of cool. Um, it's gets used with a lot of low tunings for me. I definitely like that. Um, aside from that, I think that uh, I've used like the ribbon mics and things like that. And I'm not really a huge fan of the ribbon mics because they're just not badass enough for heavy music, in my opinion. So I kind of stay away from the ribbons. So there you go. Like an i5, a high LPR 30, a 57 and a 421. I think those are kind of like my staples. Dear small time abolisher. I'm curious how you went about setting up and determining your listening position in your new space. While I know it is very similar to your last studio, I've also re renovated my control room recently and changed my listening position. Curious on your process and maybe what you've done to pick the best location as well as the treatment decisions that you made. I'm trying to get a better listening environment while mine is better than before. I know there's room for improvement. I've delved into the EQ wizard and done some pink noise tests, but that's a little bit overwhelming. Uh, maybe we can add a section for members posting pics or for their listening positions of their rooms or pointers and how to improve them. Thanks, Eric. All right, Eric. Um, I've got some thoughts on this. So I think you're going to be kind of disappointed with my answer, but my answer is a little bit more practical. I've never sat and, you know, like done pink noise sweeps with a measurement microphone and, you know, all that fancy shit. I've never done that before. Um, I should you know, bring down the fire and brimstone on me for not doing it because I, you know, I, I feel like part of me knows better, but at the same time, I'm all about practical. So I determine my listening position by first building my room to a correct ratio. And I went online and found like some ratios, for example, like the John L. Sayers forum. Um, I can't remember. It's, I'm going to butcher the shit out of this guy's name. It's like Septi Meyer or Sep Meyer or something like that. There's some good ratios. So I built my room as close to the ratios as I possibly could. And then you want to be in the length position. So if your room um, is longer, you want to be on one end of that because it, there's more room for the bass to develop. So first things first, um, I try to get my listening position like 32, 33, 34, somewhere in there, percent of the room like you're supposed to. And um, then I just treat. So I treat my corners and then I treat my back wall a little bit, my first reflection points, and then I go and I listen to the room. And if the room feels too reverberant, then I'll add some additional treatment to get things from bouncing around. Or if the room feels too dead, then I'll remove treatment. And I just add treatment and I really just sit down and listen. But more importantly, I grab a CD of tracks that I know very intimately well mixed by other people um, that I really love their work that I've been listening to for years. And I play it and then I sit there and I dial in my sub and I dial in my speakers and you know I, I spend the time to make sure that like you know I've measured my speakers off the wall and at least everything is symmetrical you know left to right front to back etc and then I listen to those tracks and I just like sit there and I learn the room because I know what that low end sounds like in you know 50 different systems so when I hear it in my room if it sounds like oh man it's really muddy maybe I need to add some traps or you know put a, a, a trap behind my subwoofer maybe my subwoofer is too loud and I just experiment with things until I sit down in my listening position I'm like man this sounds great and then when I sit down and I mix I'm like all right does this feel right and then I, I go through and I take the mix and then I go and I reference it in a bunch of places and I'm like all right you know how does this translating another thing I'll do is I'll also listen to a bunch of my old mixes um you know the, the few of them that i actually like that i don't hate and don't want to completely redo but i don't actually i don't know if i have any of those but you know i'll try to listen to some records that i've done that have done well and um you know other people like the mix on so 
then I'll take those records and I'll listen to it and I'll listen to the bottom end and all that stuff and see if it feels about right, like what I'm used to hearing. And once I kind of get my room and I play around with the treatment a little bit and to get it to the spot where it's like that, then I just say, screw it, man, let's mix songs. I don't want to spend a whole week moving around my stuff. I got work to do. So, you know, I'm very run on run and gun and very practical on my room treatment, but I feel like you just need to experiment and spend some time, you know, playing with different treatment and stuff like that. But most important thing is get your corners trapped, get your first reflection points, then maybe get like a cloud and stuff like that. But that's pretty much uh, the lay of the land and anything after that is negotiable. Dear vanquisher of small time, Sir Joel of the kingdom of small time vanquishing, you help inspire me to invest in quality gear, but while I research and budget, I'm worrying about worst case scenarios. Call me paranoid, but do you think I need insurance and that would be smart for our home studio? Nelson, fuck yes, get insurance immediately. Listen, all right, here's the deal. You can go out and spend a bunch of money buying equipment, which you know, you're gonna need some gear to do your job, but if something happens to your equipment, and I'm gonna tell you a story about this here in a minute, something happens to your equipment, you're gonna be like, oh man, I'm so happy I have insurance because the whole building or the house burned down, knock on wood, hopefully that doesn't happen. But you know what I mean? Like any kind of crazy catastrophe can happen. You can get an electrical surge that can fry out your computer and your hard drives. Who knows? There's all kinds of things. Spend the money to get insurance. It's super cheap. I've got six figures worth of insurance and all the gear I have here, and it's literally a couple hundred bucks a month a year, plus millions of dollars of liability on the building. And you know, so if anybody comes in and they like, you know, decide to like smash themselves through my wall drunk and then try to sue me for it, at least I don't lose my Shadow Hills mastering compressor, you know? So get insurance. Literally, no one has ever sat down and said insurance costs a lot of money that's ever needed to use it in an emergency. Now I'm gonna tell you a story because I saw this a few weeks ago. There was a guy in one of the forums and he had a great tragedy where basically he had all of his backup hard drives, his laptop and his sprinter and it got jacked. Somebody broke in and took all of his shit and um, he lost all of his sessions and all of his work. He was working on four albums. He didn't even have rent money. He literally lost everything. And he didn't have insurance and he didn't have it backed up via crash plan. So, you know, he didn't spend five bucks a month on insurance. Uh, I mean, on crash plan to back up his data to the cloud. And he didn't spend literally like you know, 200 bucks a year, $100 a year to insure his gear for a replacement value. So he could have had brand new gear within the week and been back on his feet, plus gotten all of his files back on his new computer with minimal loss and been compensated for his time, but he did not have insurance. So dude, for the love of God, for everybody listening to this, please go out and get insurance on your equipment and get crash plan to back up your data and do not let that same mistake happen to you, please. Do not be silly and do not be a fool. Always be prepared because you never think it's gonna be you and then when it happens to you, you're like, shit, I wish I would've spent the money and not screwed myself over. So be responsible, be an adult, get insurance. Thank you. Dear one who takes the sledgehammer to all that is small time and annihilates it, I've got a question for you. In your machine head, Nail the Mix, while you were talking about balancing kick and bass, you mentioned Children of Bodom's 2003 album, Hate Crew, Death Roll. Damn, I love that album. Uh, just random sidetrack. Um, in my experience, and from a year of watching Nail the Mix, it seems like most people are in favor of running the kick around 60 hertz and the bass around 80 hertz. After hearing you mention the Bodom album as an example of doing it the other way around, I can't unhear it. That album and their follow-up have a particular and very distinctive loud, heavy bass sound, um, and it's just such a huge part of their overall sound, and I I've never really appreciated it until you pointed it out. So my question is this, 
Under what circumstances would you as a mixer decide to lay the kick above the bass? And what kind of thing would be would you be looking for musically uh, to make this preferable to running it using the more conventional method of bass on top of the kick? And how would you avoid ending up with a crazy thin kick drum as a result? Thanks for answering these questions. Looking forward to it, Charlie. All right, Charlie. Generally, there's no right and wrong. I don't. I can't say that the kick below the bass is some kind of standard. It's more of it's got more energy and it's, the mix sounds more powerful, whereas the kick above the bass is going to sound a little bit more, you know, beefier and bigger. Now, like for example, like a lot of '90s rock mixes were done with the kick above the bass, where you didn't have like a super brutal heavy kick drum, but you just had a super deep, awesome, crushing uh, bass, you know, and it was really fat and round. So generally, there's going to be a lot of different considerations. For example, like the tempo. If the tempo of the song is fast, it's really hard to get like a super, you know, just smashing 50, 60 hertz sub in your kick because it's going to muddy everything up. But you can get a lot of bass going on down there and you can have a kick that's, uh, you know, a little bit thinner and things like that. So a fast tempo is a good indicator, you know, like really, really aggressive music and things like that. Now you can do the kick below the bass there and it will sound really powerful, but again, it can get really muddy and you're gonna have to do a ton of automation. But to be honest, it's really a preference thing. I mean, some guys like the kick above the bass, some people like the bass above the kick. And it also is tuning, you know, if your guitars are tuned down like an octave, um, it's gonna be really hard to get a super subbing kick because you know you've effectively uh, taken the octave of the guitars and moved it down, and frequency pitch is so much lower on the guitars and the bass and etc. that it's just going to be completely crushing everything from like 30 hertz to 60 hertz. So, you know, you need to really think about those considerations when you're mixing and experiment. You know, I always like to play around when I'm mixing and I have time and just see if I like the kick above the bass or vice versa. Now, getting the kick to sound not too thin is really, I feel like, about just spending some time EQing it. You, know, you can still have a lot of energy in your kick at 70 hertz, 80 hertz, you know, even at 100 hertz. Um, go listen to some of the pop mixes like Britney Spears, Toxic, um, Katy Perry, uh, Teenage Dream, things like that. Um, Kesha, Die Young is a good example. The kick there has got most of its power at like 120 hertz. And there's a lot of the bass synths are going right below that kick. So you can get a really punchy sound that way. Um, but again, you know, in heavy rock and metal and stuff like that, um, it, it, definitely the more modern trend is to be doing it, you know, where the kick is below. But there's no right or wrong, you know, it just depends. You know, maybe you like a really bass heavy mix that drives it, or maybe you like a really drum heavy mix. Each one of those is going to give the song a different emotional impact and create a different feel. And you just got to experiment. Each song is its own song, and you should treat each one when you're mixing like that. All right, next question. Dear Dark Lord of No Small Time and French Fries, two-part question. Number one, what are the keys to getting fast at mixing when you do multiple songs in a day, and how do you go about trusting your gut for EQing and compression and et cetera? And number two, how fast, uh, sorry, when mixing fast, how do you allow for creativity and experimentation, or does being able to mix really fast uh, no, wait, sorry, let me read that again. Or does being able to mix fast allow you to do the extra creative stuff? Okay, so Patrick, 
Um, I'll answer the second question first. When I'm mixing really fast, I don't really care about creativity and experimentation. I care about getting the song done so I can get the 40 other songs I need to mix finished and getting it to sound awesome and super consistent. So I'm gonna use a lot of different templates. So I experiment with templates and things like that, trying to find like the right drum sound or, you know, so I can just load it, nope, load it, nope, load it, yes, that sounds good. All right, load a couple different guitar sounds, yep, nope, 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 yes, love that. Load a couple different bass sounds, yes, boom, 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 there, it sounds great. Load some different vocal chains, et cetera. So you gotta have your shit set up to the point where you can just go in and go out really fast like that. So what are some of the keys to getting, you know, really fast mixing-wise? Um, well, first off, I'm going to just mention here that I have an entire course coming out on this and how to mix over 500 songs a year. And it's going to be really awesome and super in-depth. And I'm super stoked to tell you guys about it and to show you guys. I think you guys are going to really dig it. It's so savage and so ruthless. And there's just so many cool tricks. But just to give you a very small taste of some of the immensity of that course, um, for example, you need to have a great system of organization and templates. So, you know, like I said, you can fly different things in. You know, you never want to mix and prep at the same time. So you want to batch all of your tasks. So like do all your prepping in one day, then do all your mixing in another day and things like that. Um, another thing that's really important is the prioritization of the elements of the mix. So what are you focusing on that matters the most? For example, getting the triangle sample to sound the best in the hip hop mix isn't as important as getting the kick bass and your vocals sounding super awesome. So if you only have two hours to mix, you know, if you're going to spend an hour on those three things, then who cares about the rest of the stuff? That's 80% of the mix. So if the triangle isn't the best triangle sound, then just let it go. So it's about prioritizing. It's about organizing and just so many different things. But I don't want to go on forever about that because it's there. there's just too many things to go over and it's completely overwhelming to do on a single podcast. So how do you go about trusting your gut for compressing and EQing, et cetera? Um, I think you need to train it. And I'm a big fan of setting up limitations. So for example, um, maybe grab a mix, don't do any EQ, load up all your compression chains and stuff and you know, whip out a fader balance and then just go through and in 30 seconds, try to each cue each instrument and then go on to the next one. So set up rules for yourself, like never EQ more than 15 seconds. And just, you want to really emphasize trusting your gut. So you're not sitting there and tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. You know, if you only allow yourself to EQ at once, you know, this is more for practice than actually mixing for real life. But if you only allow yourself to EQ a sound once and you give yourself 20 seconds, it's going to be your initial impulse. You're not going to sit there screwing with the snare for four hours. You're just going to be like, boom, boom, boom. Sounds good. Well, maybe it's not perfect, but that's not what's important. It's not about being perfect. It's about mixing the song and getting faster and being able to train your gut. You know, in terms of getting your compressor settings correct, I think it's important with your compression to just have it set up in templates and have everything automatically gain structured so you can just drop it in and know that if you're hitting it at a certain um, input level, that the output level is already going to be calibrated into your master chain. So really sitting down and take the time, taking the time to get your templates to do that. So hopefully that helps you out. All right, last question of the day, and this one has several parts. Hey, Dark Lord of No Small Time. I've been doing the home studio producer thing for a couple of years, but in the last few months, I've been getting a lot more consistent paid work. Good for you, man. That's awesome. Congratulations. Not enough to live off of yet, but it's picking up a lot. I've always uh, done it kind of freelance, though, not as a business or whatever, but I've started getting a lot of work with bigger clients, at least for me. 
uh, who signed to Universal Music Group. And now there's even, um, and more than ever, I'm having these business worries and questions that are creeping up on me. So first question, at what point financially should I start worrying about taxes or claiming these freelance home studio jobs and my taxes? Holy shit, dude, immediately, you cannot not pay your taxes because if the IRS audits your ass, and I'm assuming you're an American, but if you're not, whatever your taxing authority is, if they audit you and you're not paying taxes, you are fucked. They will hit you with penalties and back taxes and they will screw you. So immediately start claiming your taxes, get a separate bank account and get, an, a, get a corporation or an LLC in America uh, to protect your assets so that if something happens to your studio, you know, you're not fucked as we kind of talked about earlier. Uh, next question, where should I begin with my tax records for my home studio work? Okay, first things first, grab some money and go meet with an accountant, spend an hour and have an accountant help you set up your business and teach you how to do your taxes. You don't need to do anything crazy. Like for example, at bare minimum, you can have a bank account open for your business. You only put business money in there. You only draw funds when you're A, paying yourself a salary or, or you're doing like an equity draw, depending on how your business structure is set up. Or number two, uh, whether you're buying equipment. So, you know, so you are you know, writing things off. So you have a checkbook and a debit card so you can keep track of your expenses. And then you're gonna go and reconcile all of your stuff and you're gonna make a profit and loss sheet, which basically says how much revenue did you have minus expenses and here's your net income. From that, your accountant can go and uh, reconcile your checkbook and track all your stuff. So you need to sit down with an accountant. Don't put this off. Do this immediately. You gotta do it. Don't fuck this up. It's super important because the accountant will give you tax strategies on how to save money and will put you at a massive advantage. If you're not writing things off, for example, you could be you know, saving 30%, depending on which tax bracket you are, 40% or almost even half your money if you live in like a state like California where they have exceptionally exorbitant, ridiculous taxes. So it's important to get ahead of the game now because man, every you it is your duty as a citizen of whatever country you live to pay the least amount of taxes legally possible. You're only required by law to pay what taxes you are required. So don't be stupid. Take the advice and go out and learn everything you can about tax law because you have to be educated. If you're educated, you will pay much less in taxes than other people and you get to actually keep more of your money. And believe me, if you have a family and you want kids and you know a house and all that crap and a wife, um, you're gonna be really happy that you did that because man, they absolutely destroy you with taxes. And it's really hard to have several kids, at least in America, and um, you know make a decent living because they take all your fucking money and they give it away. So, you know, uh, be smart about it and learn how to maximize all your deductions. So that's where I would begin. Go meet with an accountant. Do it tomorrow. Don't wait. Whenever you hear this podcast, immediately go and do it. Do not fucking procrastinate. Okay, next question is, should I be setting aside of a portion of each job for taxes? Yes, 30% is a pretty good default of that. So have two bank accounts, one for tax revenue and um, you know one for your actual revenue. Now, this is something I never do. I always wait to the end of the year. So I'm a total hypocrite when I do this. Um, but then I always get hammered and I have to pay out a shitload of money at the end of the year and I totally get fucked on taxes. So you know, be responsible about it. Um, it's easy when you're by yourself and you're single, but when you've got a family, you know, it's like sometimes you need money for this or this or that, or, you know, something breaks in your house or your car and, you know, you got to spend the money. You can't put it aside for taxes. So you're going to have to pay estimates. Um, if you live in America and you have a, a business 
every quarter you have to put the, uh, aside a certain amount of money, but it's hard as a freelancer running a studio to necessarily predict how much money you're gonna make. So sometimes your estimates will come in a little bit short and you'll owe a ton of money. And um, you know, so you just gotta prepare for a rainy day. I mean, for example, I, I've literally had times where I've owed like $20,000 and I didn't even expect it or realize it, where I'm like, whoa, shit, I made a lot more money this year than I thought I did. And uh, fuck, now I gotta pay the government $20,000 and uh, I gotta come up with it in two weeks. Woohoo! Yeah, it sucks. So, you know, don't be that guy. Be smarter than that and be responsible. So put some money aside for your taxes if you can. I understand life is hard. You know, sometimes you've got credit cards and debts and, you know, kids and all daycare and all kinds of shit to pay for. It's, it's difficult. So just do the best you can and make sure you pay your taxes. Do not screw around because, like I said, if you get audited, they're going to nail you and take you for everything that you have. They're absolutely savage, ruthless, horrible people. And, um, the IRS, it is what it is, man. Just a very terrifying organization. So pay your taxes. Don't fuck around. Um, next question. Should I be sending out invoices for everything I work on? Yeah, you can. I mean, what's more important is every dollar that goes into your bank account, uh, you declare as revenue. So you can basically say, yeah, you know, I've collected, here's all my revenues. Boom. You know, no one's going to get upset if there's not an exact invoice for something or whatever, as long as you're paying, you know, here's all the money that I made, you know, and if, and if the money reconciles with your lifestyle, the IRS is not going to come and say, oh, it says you make $5,000 here on paper and you don't have a job, but I see four Mercedes brand new in your driveway. Hmm. Are you ducking taxes, buddy? You know, then you're going to get slammed. So, you know, you got to be smart. So yeah, you know, invoices are a good habit, but not 100% necessary, but yes, you should do them. Am I an idiot for waiting this long to seek tech advice? Um, you're not an idiot. You're just, uh, I would say, uninformed and lazy about it, which there's nothing wrong because, again, you know, I'm no saint with taxes. Neither is anybody else. I mean, I pay all my taxes legally. You know, I take all the deductions that I'm legally entitled to, but, you know, no matter how much you know about any subject, life is busy and you can always learn more. So, you know, just be responsible about it. That's all I'm saying, man. You got to... Uh, you got to get right on that shit and you got to get on your taxes. Like I said, you don't want to screw around. The IRS is something to be feared. Be responsible, pay your taxes, you know, don't, uh, don't play games. Okay. Next part of this, he says, okay, so all this stuff is over my head and everyone asks, gives conflicting advice to the extent of my knowledge regarding taxes. Uh, involves TurboTax.com and what's on a W-2 from whatever fast food job I've worked in the past. I really have no idea what to do or if I should even be worrying about this right now. Uh, the way things I've uh, the way thing I've done it are um, clients usually reach out to me and then send me work and um, I would do the work, send it back. Then they pay me cash or PayPal me. Sometimes it's a flat rate, like a hundred bucks a mix and master. Then they come and do like 20 bucks an hour. I've dabbled with invoices in the past. When a client asked for one after that, I tried to make it a habit of doing invoices until for everything until one time call me, I didn't need to send invoices unless I'm claiming it on my taxes. Uh, that's what the whole conundrum <laughs> started for me. It got me wondering, how do I start to handle this side of growing my business? I come from a very small town and nobody around here can give me a straight answer on the matter. Any advice would help me immensely. Um, and I figured you find gents would probably uh, have some good advice on this stuff. Thanks, Steve. Okay, so Steve, I've pretty much answered everything in there, but let me just reiterate a few things because I feel like no matter how much I say this, this stuff is super important and you really need to get good advice. So if you're from a small town, get in your car, go find a big town and find an accountant. Um, there's gotta be somebody who knows what they're doing that's smart. You just, you gotta get with an accountant. Um, and you need to get a separate bank account and a business. So then you put all of your money that you make. So if somebody gives you cash, you go and then you take it to the bank and you deposit it and you log it as income, you track it. 
you know, the account will show you how to set it up with like a tax tracking software, like TurboTax or whatever you want to use, or you can do it on a spreadsheet, et cetera. I always do all mine by hand because I like to count every single penny and make sure that my balance sheet matches. But you got to meet with an accountant. The account will show you exactly how to set it up, exactly how to maximize all your deductions and save money. Because dude, I'm telling you every dollar counts when you're, you know, you're trying to make a living doing this stuff and you want to keep as much of your money as you're legally entitled to do it uh, because they like to take it and steal it from you. So, you know, what else can I say? Pay your taxes, be responsible. And, um, uh, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a pain in the ass. They make it really complicated, uh, needlessly, but you know, it is what it is. It's reality. And unfortunately you have to deal with it. I don't know a single person that likes paying taxes, but they're inevitable. So, that is what it is. Thank you guys so much. Hopefully this has been helpful to you guys again. Um, I've had fun. Hopefully you guys have. And if you got questions, it's ALM at, uh, sorry, ALM, AL at URM Academy. Uh, email dear Joel in the subject line. Give me some detailed questions. I will do my best to help you guys out with whatever I can. And again, it's been fun. So I'll see you guys next time and cheers. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high quality, cutting edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.